Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus in president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. After another tough loss for the Patriots, this time at least they don't get blown out, but they lose 19 to 17 to the Raiders, crushing. They actually had an opportunity to win this game. They actually had a chance to win. They, of course, couldn't do that. So another torturous game to watch from a Patriots perspective. At least this game was a little bit more entertaining. But nonetheless, the result is the same as the Patriots now drop to one and five on the season. Things are getting ugly for this team. So we got a lot to do in terms of the Patriots. Coming up next, we're going to chat with three-time Super Bowl champ James White. The first portion is like we've been doing all season long. You'll hear our segment from FanDuel TV, and then we'll continue with James, get into this game. And where do the Patriots go from here? Could Kraft actually move on from Bill Belichick after the season? We'll get into all that in just a little bit. Welcome back in. I'm Brian Barrett from Off the Pike, and joining us now is three-time Super Bowl champ James White. James, the Patriots dropped to 1-5 and after a loss this afternoon to the Las Vegas Raiders, had a chance to win this game. And before we even get started here, so from 16 to 2017, Tom Brady played in 28 regular season games for you guys, because of course he had the four-game suspension. You know how many losses you guys had with Tom Brady in 28 games? Four. The Patriots have already lost five games this season, and it feels like, from my perspective, this one may be the most aggravating, just because some of these other games, you had no chance against the Cowboys. You weren't in it against the Saints. This game, you actually had a chance to win the game, and what happens? Costly penalties, and then at the end of the game, another penalty. I don't know how you get a delay of game on second down when you're trying to move the ball down the field and score. And Devontae Parker, like we've criticized Mac. I shouldn't say we. I've criticized Mac a lot this season. He did throw the perfect ball to Devontae Parker, and he can't come up with it. And I can't help but think to myself, Parker's the guy they wanted to sign to a contract extension. The guy on the other side of the field, Jacoby Myers, now has his fifth touchdown of the season, who the Patriots didn't want to pay. Jacoby Myers has as many receiving touchdowns as the entire Patriots team, or I should say one less. He has four. But if we count Jonu Smith, he has one in Atlanta. Jonu and Jacoby, five touchdowns. The Patriots, five receiving touchdowns as well. So this one to me, James, is just, they really had a chance. They finally had a chance to win the game, and their mistakes came back to haunt them. 
Yeah, it's very tough. I had a lot of missed opportunities, a lot of you know bad time penalties when you have potential of good plays or big plays. Just just let another one slip away. You know, Jimmy goes down, Hoyer comes in. Got to give credit to Hoyer. Yeah. He did a a pretty good job. You know, spreading the ball around. Had a deep had a deep shot down the field. So I'm sure he was probably you know geeked up for that opportunity. It seems like Josh Josh has got Bill's number. Was he three and zero against yeah. Bill as a coach? So <laughs> something something like that. So. Yeah, it's just it's tough. They're in a it's on a slippery slope right now. You know, one and five. You go Bills, Dolphins next. So, you know, it's not going to get any easier than it did today. Um, Just too many missed opportunities. I I thought it was it was improved today. I thought the defense did enough to win the football game. You know, offensively they had opportunities to win the football game, especially early on in the game. Just start really slow. You know, playing from behind once again. It's got to find a way to get off to a fast start, especially offensively, because whenever they dig themselves in a hole, it just takes them way too long to get going. And then they have to make a heroic effort, you know, in the fourth quarter or a final possession to try and win. And right now they don't, you know, have that figured out to to be that team to drive down with, you know, a minute 30 or a minute left in the game. to get Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because after the delay of game, you have Vidarian Lowe trying to block Max Crosby who's one of the best pass rushers at the NFL. And then you have Gasicki trying to like chip him before he goes out for his route. Yeah, Gase- yeah and Gasicki can't block chip. to begin with, right? Yeah, so you got these chip. two guys trying to block one of the most fearsome pass rushers <laughs> at the NFL. Low coming into today had given up 25 pressures, which was the second most of any tackle in the NFL, according to Pro Football Focus. And we saw even early on in the game, he gets a false start because he's probably got it in his head, like, oh, I'm going to give something up when it comes to this. So yeah. the offensive line certainly did not help Mac in this game. And then when you start to think about some of the mistakes they made, like it was better for Mac, but it wasn't a great game. I mean, I th- you think back to the interception, James. I don't know what he's thinking there. I mean, actually, Hunter Henry was open. It's yeah. almost like, and it, yeah, I know he's on the move. Yeah, he was, he was it's open. Kind of, yeah, it's like this fadeaway <laughs> pass. Like, what is he doing? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was talking about last week a little bit. Whenever he he gets out or he feels a little you know pressure in the pocket and he gets out and starts scrambling to the right, just throw the ball away. Just live the fight. Another, even though you know Hunter was was open on that play, it wasn't a bad idea. But just from what you know he's done so far this year, for me, it's just when you're in that situation, okay, give it a couple, give it like two seconds when you're scrambling outside the pocket. If nobody's there, just throw it away because it just you know seems to end up. You know, in the defender's hands at some point, or or a possibility of an interception whenever he does that. So for me, like I'd much rather him just throw the football away. Obviously, he's just trying to to make plays because they're really struggling to create big plays in this offense. So I feel like that's where it's coming from. But for me, like I said, that was a a good drive was going on right there. So if if he just doesn't throw an interception there, maybe they get three points, maybe they get a touchdown. You know, we don't know. So especially when we're driving the football, which they've struggle to do put those drives together if you if we're getting four and five plays we you know crossing the 50 yard line no just don't turn it over yeah you know, and don't the try other thing that play. sticks out to me about this game and this is a trend that's been going on all season it's not just mac jones but it's the offense in general is why can't they get off to faster starts they yeah. had what negative seven yards in the first quarter of the game it's the first time ever <laughs> yeah. in the bill yeah. belichick era that yeah, they bad. had zero or fewer <laughs> yards in the first quarter and the thing to me is like they, they get a penalty on the opening drive as well, which this continues to be a trend with this team where they continue to get penalized. 
But is James? Yeah, I mean, you've been, in, the, you've yeah, been that, in these meetings, right? Isn't point. like this the stuff that you feel good about going into the game? Like the scripted plays, right? You, you feel like this is the stuff we're going to be able to execute. And I don't know if is it the plays aren't good that they're dialing up, like the it's not the right design what they're trying to do early, or is it just guys can't ex? Is it as simple as the personnel? <laughs> I mean, only <laughs> only they know the true answer. I mean, the coaches and the players, they're they're the one who know, you know, the plays that are being called, you know, on a day-to-day basis. I, I truly believe they're trying to put them in the best position to go out there and execute the penalties. That's that's all on players. That's effort, you know, sloppy, you know, fundamentals, all that stuff. It's just and if you just don't I feel like if they didn't get that penalty to start off the game, maybe they put themselves in a better chance. It's first and fifteen, like they're already offense that's struggling to put drives together. You start off the game first and 15, yeah, then it's probably going to end up in a punt, which they did. Two, three and outs to start off the game. Defense getting you the ball back a few times and whatnot, but just just no rhythm. You know, get get the interception. Oh, yeah. Get nothing out of that. Don't even drive the ball. So it's just it's just, just no, no flow to the offense. It's just – I mean, it goes in spurts. You have, like, one good drive and then a couple bad ones. You have one good drive where it looks really good, then there's nothing there. I mean – I mean, there were some creases in the running game that that drive yeah. after halftime. That was that was a really good drive. That's that's like kind of what I wanted to see from them. What are they going to do after after halftime? Because that's it's not totally scripted, but you have an idea what you know. You go in there at halftime. Okay, we're going to do this to start off the drive. We're going to get such and such in there. We we see what they're trying to do. That type of thing and try and create something in that in that form and fashion. Ramondre rips off a run. Zeke had a couple that he ended up you know punching it in. So I said they have. Guys to make plays. Yeah. KB had a had a big day today. A lot of you know catch and run plays, which you know I kind of talked about last week. If they can't get the shots down the field. Hey, just you know get the ball to them quickly. Let guys you know make guys miss and create yards that way. I mean Zeke had a big one too. That was a thought that was a BS holding call yeah. on Hunter on that that long uh, touchdown reception that he got. That was that was a flop. But if they get a big play like that, I feel like that maybe. Uplifts them a little bit because they've been struggling to create plays like that yeah. you know, all year long. It's always every time it feels like, okay, maybe they're going to put a drive together because we saw a couple of them today. We saw two good drives. Although I will say this, actually, let's address this first. Why were they going so slow on their touchdown drive? What did they not realize they were oh, down yeah, two the, scores? The, yeah, the touchdown drive to. But that's, that's what it's been like all year long. Not even when it's a drive to go, you know, be down by two points or, you know, be take the lead. It's just everything just seems really lethargic and, and really slow when they get up to the line of scrimmage. There's no emphasis, no urgency. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what – I know that's probably not what they're being coached to do, but it just seems like they're just all trying to get completely on the same page and it's like three, two, one, and they snap it. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's like a communication thing between Mac and the office line, the receivers, you know, motion shifts, all that. They had a couple, you know – miscommunications there on that drive as well with the shift and Max snapped it a little too early. So they definitely got to get that figured out, especially in the red zone. I mean, they got bailed out on the rough in the pasture. That's what ended up giving them the touchdown at that point. But yeah, this has to be better execution down there, especially after last season. They really stinked it up last year in the red zone. Yeah. That was one of the worst red zone offense in the league. So at least yeah, they, they got, got there. They got they been a couple too. games. They had eight red zone trips coming yeah, into this they game. Think there, about two that. Two, eight right? in the red zone. Not even like, hey, they weren't <laughs> creating when they got there. They were in the red zone eight times prior to today. And then you start to think about the fact that they went scoreless yeah, for enough. 12 quarters. That's the equivalent of three football games. 
The last touchdown they had prior to the one they got today, the yes. touchdown that they had there in the second half, was the Farrell Brown touchdown, which I feel like that was a lifetime ago when Farrell Brown had that touchdown. Yeah. That was a long time ago yeah, when he that was, had that. So yeah. it had been a while. Yeah. <laughs> now, now it's just, and that was just yeah. a good play design, blown coverage, that type of thing. So, yes, yeah, they're just trying to trying to make it. Like when they when they have their opportunities, like the one that they had with DP towards the end of the game, you know, DP, he's a good enough player to, to make that catch. He just has to find a way to come down with it because if they make that play right there, who who knows what happens. Then you possibly get in field goal range a couple plays later and, you know, Chad could possibly make a kick to to win the football game. So if you're a team who's really struggling to create those that type of separation or, you know, that type of play call to get guys behind the defense when you have your one chance to do it, yeah. you got to make At least it. you give yourself a chance if Devontae Parker catches the ball. You don't have to go that much further, right? I mean, yeah. you'd be up to about, what was it, about the 45-yard line. You have a yeah. real opportunity, and it just, yeah, they had chances yeah, in this game. I mean, play. we go back to the interception. You took three points off the board. You're in field goal range if you're Mac Jones. Like, you got to realize where you're at yep. on the field. And then the other thing that I would say about Parker, yeah. almost, I'm almost to the point now that they're 1-5, it's like, Maybe do we embrace the youth a little bit, play Taekwon Thornton a little bit more? You look at this game today, I thought the play action pass down the field to Thornton. I was thinking to myself when Mac threw that, what are you doing? Just put it in bounds. Give him a chance to make the play. It- <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Good idea. I, I thought he just waited a little too long to throw. I mean, a guy that's, that's that fast, you get to the top of the drop, you just got to gotta let it rip. He's just kind of like waiting. I mean, that's, I said, that's probably a lot of the issues that have been going on. Like, he's just waiting for the perfect picture throw the football when hey you got the play action call probably i didn't see the can't see the whole play call from the tv copy but it looked like it was two goes just let it fly that's that's what the play call is for maybe get a i know marcus peters is a pretty good corner at you know tracking the ball and creating plays like that so maybe that kind of scared him off a little bit but just let it fly maybe get a pi and like get a big chunk of yards off of that if you just put the ball in balance. yeah the one thing i am happy about in this game is we saw malik cunningham there was a package for him which I like that they had some plays for him. And you mentioned this at the, yeah, they didn't all work, but at least there was something. There was some creativity. And you mentioned, hey, you know what? They threw it to the Kendrick Bourne guy because he's good at football. We said this last week, simplify it, throw it to your good player. So that if you're going to take a positive from a one in five football team. That would be it. All right, back into the pod portion of, that's kind of redundant, the pod portion of the podcast. Look at me, professional right there, James. <laughs> the pod portion. <laughs> the pod portion of the podcast. <laughs> but anyway, we were just recording our FanDuel TV segment, and I was bringing up Malik Cunningham and the Kendrick Bourne. They threw it to Kendrick Bourne, and I feel like every time they throw it, he was targeted 11 times. He had 10 receptions for 89 yards. And then the Cunningham thing, I'll get to that in a second. They had some interesting plays, but... Why do you think it's taken them so long to just embrace the fact that Kendrick Bourne is probably their best receiver? Like, I don't even think it's debatable, like, right now, especially, I guess the other guy that would have a case, and this is scary to say because he's a six-round rookie, and nothing against him, it's just a six-round rookie, probably him and Demario Douglas have been, like, the most positive players on that offense from a pass-catching perspective. Yeah, they they have been. I think KB's kind of like the spark for the offense. He's the one guy who kind of, Bring some juice when he he makes a catch, he makes a play, he gets energized. You know, Zeke kind of does it too when he he has a good run, that type of thing. He, you know, does his, you know, you know feed Zeke <laughs> type of thing. They kind of bring and they bring the energy to the offense, which has been, like I said, very lethargic. A lot of the guys just seem like they're just kind of going through the motions out there. So yeah, get him the ball as much as possible. He's the guy making plays. He can make the catch and run plays. He's 
you know, getting behind the defense. He's he's playing with effort. Even Tamario Douglas as well. The like he's more kind of a game plan type of guy. They'll throw him in there at certain spurts, and he when he gets his plays, he's made them. He's quick. He can he has speed to get behind the defense as well too. So yeah, I mean, just find those guys who Mac trusts, who O'Brien trusts, and get those guys in football as much as possible. But like I said. The running game really got going a little. I know it wasn't the numbers don't really show everything, but I thought them being able to run the football just just a little bit created some of those you know passing lanes for for KB for him to get those easy catches and you know make those run out to catch plays. But I said I think they they switched up a bunch of the the personnel. I saw like thirteen personnel, you know, three tight ends, which I was hoping to see more earlier in the season. You know, a bunch of big body guys out there. So I think the more they can makes up personnel, cause confusion on the defense. I think that'll help them some too. Yeah. And I just, at, at times, like I feel bad for Mac. He's making mistakes too, but it's like, you have a bad offensive line. We know he's sort of limited, limited as a passer, right? He's not like Josh yeah. Allen or Justin <laughs> Herbert or Pat Mahomes, anything along those lines. Yeah. And you compile all that with a bad offensive line, not a lot of weapons. So when I do see one guy that's actually playing well for them, I'd like them to continue to throw that guy the football. And I just hope they can do that going forward. But <laughs> getting to Malik Cunningham. So it was interesting. First drive comes in for a play. They get a penalty. Not great. Second drive, <laughs> handoff to Stevenson for one yard. The drive after halftime, he's on the field for the touchdown, right? He splits out and then Zeke gets yeah. the direct snap. Okay, that one worked. And then later on, he lost five yards on a sack. So, I mean, it's basically like one for five, 20% in yeah. terms of the hit yeah. rate with Malik Cunningham. But <laughs> I'm guessing that as this season goes on now, they'll start to evolve what they feel comfortable doing. And I'm sure when they get into the red zone, they're going to start to incorporate him a little bit more as well. I didn't see that coming. I didn't see the Zeke direct. Well, I mean, when he motioned out, I didn't think that would be in the playbook, though. So yeah. it's good to at least try something different when your offense has been so anemic this season. You got to at least try different things. So I do give them credit for that. I mean, too bad they weren't listening to the pod, James. You and I suggested this like three weeks ago. Yeah. No, I like it. I mean, I said not every play worked, but it gives coordinators and defenses you know, a little bit more to think about when he's on the football field. Is he a receiver? Is he going to line up at quarterback? Is going to be read option? Are they going to motion out? You know, do wildcat makes them have to prepare for so much more. So I think, you know, his you know personnel package will continue to expand. I think it'll help the offense some. Like I said, they punch it in on the end zone, you know, in the red zone with him. So yeah, I think he's a a dynamic football player. I'm sure they'll get the ball to him in space a few times, let him run with it. I said you got to do whatever at this point just to find a spark in this offense to you know find ways to create chunk plays or you know catch the defense off guard yeah they gotta do something like the Farrow brown play that was they <laughs> caught him off guard that's how they scored yeah. their touchdown yeah so. yeah wasn't expecting the ball going to him no <laughs> that's why that's something i do give josh mcdaniels credit for like he always had those like trick plays up his sleeve whether it's like a julian oh, yeah. edelman double pass something along those lines they always had josh always had something and so far, we haven't seen a lot of that creativity from Bill O'Brien. I think he's hamstrung by some of the personnel issues. But sometimes when he tries to get creative, like the the one to Bourne today, I'm like, that's got like the sort of like the the tap pass to Bourne. I'm like, you may have an issue with that play. Like that, a, a lot could go wrong with that one. So I think sometimes he try he gets a little bit too cute. But just talking about the 
sort of the morale of the team because I was watching Patriots fifth quarter and like every question was like, what's the morale of the team? What's the morale of the team? And I feel, actually feel bad for the players. <laughs> like if that was me, I'd be like, how do you think the morale is right now? We just lost our fifth yeah. game of the season. Like, yeah, we're all great in there. Like, what do you, what do you think? Yeah. We're all pissed off. But when you come into work and you're <laughs> one in five, obviously, James, you never had this type of experience because when you were playing, yeah. you guys were winning Super Bowls and going to the AFC title game every year. But then you look ahead with the Bills and the Dolphins coming up, two of the best teams in the NFL. It's just, it's got to be somewhat demoralizing when you actually had one there. Like, if you just picked up this win against the Raiders, and again, their starting quarterback yeah. goes down, you're playing a guy that you cut. You cut Brian Hoyer. And I know he only completed six <laughs> passes, but you mentioned the bomb he threw to Tucker down the field. You he lost did. to a guy that you cut. You lost to a guy that you benched during, he, Bill benched him during the COVID year. Remember, what was it? He like forgot. <laughs> yeah. Remember he like took a sack <laughs> against Chiefs Kansas game. City. It was like that Tuesday <laughs> night game. And then so Hoyer never got his opportunity yeah, to get back in play. So it's just, to me, like that's, that's going to be difficult going to work after something like that, especially when you know like you had, you had a chance to win this one. And now you're playing Josh Allen, who really, outside of the win game, he's had the Patriots number over the past three years. It's definitely demoralizing. Um, like I said, I've never been a part of you know too much losing in the Patriots organization, but the the one year in 2020 when we weren't winning, you know, many football games where you know we weren't dominating on offense, we weren't dominating on defense. So work is just a, it's a little less fun. I mean, probably coaches probably a little bit more on edge probably nitpicking a little bit more, but he's got to find ways to be better. And like I said, there's not going to be guys getting chewed out left and right. Cause that, that's what really starts to, you know, make the team start to separate and, you know, point, point fingers and all that types of stuff. So I think everybody in the locker room, a lot of those guys were there last year. I think they'll, they'll stay together. I think they just got to find ways to be better. You know, individually, everybody looks themselves in the mirror. They have nothing to lose at this point. So they just go out there, play free, play, play together and see what happens because it's, it's going to be tough. And like I said, they knew that going in. But like I said, if you can find a way to get one of these division games, possibly two, I mean, hey, who knows what can happen. So, yeah, I mean, like it's I, – I know I still see a little bit of that light at the end of the tunnel, probably unlike most people. But like I said, if you can if you can beat the Bills, if you can beat the Dolphins, I feel like then maybe you get a little bit of more confidence going forward. But it's, it's, it's going to be extremely tough, especially – you know, defensively and offensively, because those teams can score points. And they both have really solid defenses, and this our offense just hasn't hit its stride and hasn't, you know, hasn't had that togetherness so far this year. Like I said, it's it's been in spurts. We've seen flashes. You know, today was the penalties. I think ten penalties, seventy nine yards, all that yeah. stuff. So that's very uncharacteristic of you know Patriot football. I know there's been you know more penalties the last few years, but they can correct those things, just eliminate the turnover. I mean, we keep saying the same things over and over, and I'm sure Bill and the whole coaching staff keeps repeating themselves. And it, like he says it, ad nauseum is the word he uses. So I said, everybody has to take it to heart, take the coach, and just, just figure out ways to get it done. Yeah, and it's interesting to me, like just thinking about Bill and his future, because I was, and I know he's going to be extremely frustrated right now. I mean, he thought this was going to be a decent team. There was a lot of optimism during training camp, right? Everybody felt like, okay, O'Brien's here. The offense is going to be improved. Everybody felt really good about the defense, and that checks out. The defense is really good, even though you don't have Matthew Judon and Christian Gonzalez right now. I thought for the most part, yeah. the defense played pr pretty well in this game. You like the so Jabril Peppers hit, yeah. like, oh my. 
He, yeah, that was, that was he, good crushed, he absolutely <laughs> crushed Devontae yeah. Adams. So, like, you've seen some signs, yeah. and they like that play forced the turnover. That's the one thing the defense hasn't done. You got a turnover, and as you mentioned earlier, that you couldn't do anything with it from an offensive perspective. And, and that's got to be so aggravating <laughs> for the defense where they're like, wait, hold on. Like, we just we gave you this thing, the ball, and you do something <laughs> with it. Do you, do you ever wonder about that in terms of like the offense defense dynamic? Because it's got to be, I mean, I even heard Jawan Bentley, he wasn't like taking a shot at anybody, but he's like, I thought we played well as a defense. It's like, yeah, he, he did. You play well pretty much every game as a defense. It's yeah. like, do you, you ever wonder if that becomes an issue? I mean, like I said, as a, as a defense, you definitely get frustrated for sure when, you know, you're getting stops, getting three and outs, get a ball back to the offense. Then the offense goes three and out, and you're back on the field. It gets very tiring on defense. Um, that's it. I can almost compare it to, you know, since my Badgers lost this weekend to Iowa, they're a team who's not very good offensively, but they know their identity as a team. They know they're not going to score many points on offense. So, you know, they play the, the field position game. They play good defense. They create turnovers on defense. Hey, then most of the games are going to be a four-quarter football game. If it's a final possession, we'll get a stop on defense or whatever. We'll kick a field goal to win games. They just know their identity. So, as a team at this point, as you're, you know, slowly approaching the halfway, point of the year offense you know hasn't figured it out yet give them a couple more weeks if they're not getting it going then it's probably just they're not going to be that great of an offense that year and the defense just has to take more of an onus like okay we got to create some turnovers or we got to give them better field position we just got special teams we got to create a turnover on special teams or we got to flip field position you just have to take it you know kind of that way that's got to be your approach like okay you got to be willing and accept that you can't you know, try and call the offense out and all that stuff. That's not going to change anything. That'll make things worse. I think the defense, you just got to take, put a little bit more pressure on yourself. If we want to win football games, hey, we just got to find a way to do more. I, I, know, I know that's tough. They've been doing more than enough to win football games, but if they want to win, they just got to find a way to create more turnovers, give those guys, you know, better field position, give them, you know, 40-yard line every as much as possible, 35, 40-yard line as much as possible, try and give them a short field, or they only need a few plays, get in the field goal range, or whatever it is. That's that might have to be the way they win football games this year. Yeah, and the other part of that that has to be aggravating is just they know the defense obviously knows that this offense is limited. But my frustration would be if I played on the defense is can you guys just suck a little bit less? Like don't turn it over all the time, right? Because it's like, all right, we understand that we're the best unit on this yeah, team. Yeah. But you can't continue to turn the football over and have these costly penalties where you they're resulting in three and outs when you get all these penalties. Like we look at, we mentioned the first drive of the game, penalty, penalty, Ramondre drop, and then you're running the ball in third and 15. And you're giving the ball right back to the Raiders offense, right? <laughs> After the Patriots are on the field for a while, right? So like that stuff can't happen. It's the turnovers that must be killing the defense Say where you're in field goal range. Hey, we're going to get points here. We're trying to stay in this football game. And Mac Jones throws an interception. And if you're on the defense, you're like, you guys, you had the points. We would have taken the three. We'll stay competitive in this game. Just take <laughs> the three points. Don't throw it to the other team. So that part's going to be just so aggravating for that defense. But I did want to circle him back to this Bill thing in his future. Did you hear what Teddy Bruschi said today? No, I didn't so hear that. Teddy one. was on the pregame show on ESPN, of course. He said, what do I personally feel how this should go and how this should end with Bill Belichick? This is just my personal feeling and what should happen. I want him to coach his ass off this season, get six, seven wins, all right? Have them playing respectable by the end of the season and walk away. That's what I want my former coach to do. Don't Don Chula doesn't matter. 
you've got a couple couple Super Bowls over Don Shula. You're the better coach. So Teddy's basically saying he wants him to win six or seven games. If he wins six or seven games, he's definitely coming back because then it's like, oh my god, they yeah. turn the season around at the end, <laughs> yeah. right? Like they're one in five. They're one in five right now. But I do wonder, James, do you ever think like who knows what happened what Robert Kraft wants to do at the end of the season? But at this point, I almost feel like you almost got to separate, and I know Bill would never do it, the personnel from the coaching. Like, he's almost set himself up as a coach because I still think he's a really good coach. Like, we've seen him, like, look at Devontae Adams today. He barely had an impact on the game. He can yeah. still do a lot of stuff game planning defensively. It's just, to me, where this has gone south over the past couple of years, it's more like the personnel stuff. Jacoby on the other side today, not on your side. Not bringing in a guy like DeAndre Hopkins when he basically had two options, the Titans and the Patriots, and you had more salary cap space. And then some of the decisions with the coaching staff where it's like, yeah, we can get away with Joe Judge and Matt Patricia calling plays. So, and the other portion of this is you have a quarterback that, and I hate to keep saying limited, but he's limited and you don't have the weapons. (laughs) When we see guys like Josh Allen has Stephon Diggs, we see a guy like, and Josh Allen's not limited, but think about that. He's He's got one of the best receivers in the NFL and he's one of the best quarterbacks. Two has got all these guys, Waddle and Tyreek Hill, and you have Mac Jones that's one of the least talented starting quarterbacks in the NFL. And it's like, this is not enough. So to me, it's more personnel stuff. I think Bill can still coach, but I just, I feel like this personnel thing has gone in the wrong direction now for a couple of years. And I think it's clearly showing up every Sunday. Like they they really, you don't give yourself a lot of chances to win when you're that limited in 2023 at the receiver position. And especially with the offensive line, like you traded for Verdarian Lowe right before the season. He's been bad. You're playing a rookie at guard that hasn't gone well. Cole Strange like can't even get on the field and he didn't grade out well as a rookie. So I just feel like the the roster building has been the biggest issue for Bill. So if he was to I could see him like honestly, and I've talked about this a couple of times, the boss Bill Simmons has too. I could see him like if something goes south with Robert going to another team and coaching and like having success. If he goes to a good roster, I think he can game plan successfully. <laughs> that'd be that'd be a turn of events for sure. I mean yeah, I think the personnel offensively has definitely obviously been an issue the last several years. I think defensively they've been perfectly fine finding, you know, guys, yeah. whether undrafted or, you know, free agents, all that stuff to fit exactly what he wants to do. Offensively, yeah, the offensive line has struggled the last couple of years. The receivers haven't done, you know, the greatest job. The backs have been fine. And Mack is the last two years so far, you know, hasn't been at his best. So, yeah, personnel – Everybody's going to look at that because, you know, he's a GM, he's a coach. They're going to say, you you put this together. And obviously, you you had Joe Judge, Matty P, you know, do that last year. You bring Bill O'Brien in this year, you know, still kind of similar personnel. You let Jacoby go, bring Juju. He hasn't done much, that type of thing. So, yeah, they're going to start to look at that and, you know, raise their eyebrows. And obviously, the more football games you lose, the more, you know, questions and more pressure, you know, he's going to feel. And you got to wonder how, you know, he's kind of feeling as well, like whether, you know, this they keep losing, but he's just like, all right, like I, I've kind of had enough, that type of thing. I can't, I don't think I'm going to be able to get this thing back going here in New England once again. I mean, I don't see that, but I mean, like you, you never know how, how it's going to go when, mm. when things start getting getting ugly and, you know, things can start possibly falling apart and unraveling. So, yeah, it's going to be some – very interesting, you know, decisions that have to be made if they can't, you know, 
find a way to, you know, win six or seven or eight football games this year, which is going to be, you know, tough with this, some of the opponents they have for the rest of this season. But yeah, every, every week we're going to have yeah. <laughs> this conversation. As long as the, as long as those losses keep piling up, it's going to be more and more of a question. And as you can see it on Bill's face, he looked, he looks very, I mean, he's trying to, obviously he's a person who doesn't show you know, a crazy amount of emotion on game day, but he's, he's definitely frustrated, rightfully so. Yeah, this. I said, I I hope they get together because I said they, I said they may not be the most talented team offensively and all that stuff, but I said they've had opportunities to win. You know, aside from two football games, they really had opportunity to win every other one. So yeah, and they played poorly. So I mean, there's, (laughs) I mean, there's something to look at that. I mean, like I said, obviously there's this isn't horseshoes and. And, and hand grenades where you're close <laughs> enough to win and all that stuff. So they don't nobody really cares about that. They they care about the wins and losses. But like I said, if they can just figure out a couple things, I don't know. I mean, only they're gonna know those true solutions. You know, maybe they can find a way to, to win some football games. But yeah. Well, it, that's that's <laughs> sort of like the interesting yeah. part to me about it is they played well against Philly. Yeah, they had the turnovers, but they played well. Yeah. I thought they played pretty well until the second half against Miami, right? Like, that's kind of when this thing sort of went in the other direction. Like, they were playing Tyreek Hill well. It's like the only game Tyreek Hill didn't put up, like, crazy numbers in this year. So that's what is so surprising to me is after the Philadelphia game, I came on the podcast, and I was like, oh, this looks good. Like, yeah. Okay, yeah, we're all yeah. right. <laughs> they look pretty good. And then it's like, whoa. We'll be all right. <laughs> they're one and five. Like, how did it go, how did it go to sell so quickly? I felt like optimistic. I was talking about, hey, we saw some RPOs against Philly. Bill O'Brien. Like, look at this. Play yeah, action. Saw some shots down the field. Yeah. yeah. Kendrick Bourne, Hunter Henry doing yes. things. And now it's like we're back to this spot. But just piggybacking off what you said about Bill. So you think basically it would have to be Robert moving on from Bill because I can't see Bill if he if this season continues to go the the way it's going I can't see him just like quitting on it right he this is not how he's going to want to go out he's going to want to prove that he can fix the situation so I can't see Bill just being like you know what I've had enough I'm retiring like I I could never see that like so I think that Robert would have to fire him if 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 that was like if Bill like Bill wouldn't just I can't see him just stepping away this way it'd be one thing to step away like Tom step, steps away, he's still playing at like an incredibly high level. <laughs> There's no way Bill's going out this way, especially considering, and I know like this gets overblown, but it's now 26 and 30 without Tom. There's no way he's ending his career this way. So I do believe that yeah. if Robert did decide to move on, that's why I think he would take another job just to prove that, hey, he can do something without Tom. Because it's, look, he's had four years now and it's like, unbelievable legacy greatest coach of all time but i'm sure this eats at him because he knows that that's going to be a label that's attached to him is like hey what did you do without tom you hear everybody talking about it now like I, i've got to give tom more credit for what, <laughs> for what he for what he's been doing uh, so which is which is hey which is true tom did a, a heck of a job but you can, can't have one without the other but yeah i, I think it would have to be craft like like I don't think it'll be like a, a fire. I think there'll be like some sort of conversation, that type of thing, to, you know, out of respect. But if they continue to lose, it, it'd be hard for me to see Bill just like, okay, I'll just call it quits, kind of going whatever, you know, one and sixteen. And I mean, I don't think they're going team, but whatever. Like having a losing record, I feel like he's a winner. He's a competitor. If like that conversation is had, where you know, whatever, Robert Kraft decides to go a different direction, 
I don't know what team he would, you know, try and go to because it's going to be hard to kind of shift an entire, you know, organization in a, just a couple of years. It, it takes time to, to build. Obviously, if you're going to a football team you know, who's looking for a, a coach, they're probably not a good football team, may not have the right personnel. So, yeah, it's kind of a, a tricky situation. You got to wonder, like, would he want to go out there and, you know, kind of write ship and kind of prove himself as a coach, try and catch Shula, try and prove that he can whatever do it without Tom. Cause I, obviously I'm sure he hears it. Everybody hears it. I mean, Tom hears it, everybody's talking about it. And the more this year goes on, you know, with them not winning football games, the conversation is going to continue to be had. They hear, you know, Asante Samuel getting on, yeah. getting on a bill every, every week, which, you know, he, he's just poking fun at him and all that stuff. But yeah, it's, this is a, definitely a tough situation. Definitely didn't see this coming at this point in the year. There's still a lot of football left to be played. So. Yeah, I'm actually surprised that uh, I don't like obviously know their personal dynamic, but I'm surprised Asante always says that type of stuff. It's like, dude, you were like one of the best cornerbacks in the NFL <laughs> with Belichick. And even though he didn't pay you, you got a huge contract from the Philadelphia Eagles. Like, I, I don't understand why he still like holds a grudge against Bill. It's kind of surprising to me. He must. He, he must have really wanted to stay. That must have been. <laughs> yeah. Well, that must be the only thing. <laughs> too bad he didn't catch that interception against the Giants. Would have been the undefeated <laughs> that's season. Everybody always. That's that's what everybody always picks <laughs> on him whenever he brings something up. Like, well, you dropped the interception. I'll well, say this though. He he does yeah. make good content. Like he's very entertaining guy. He does he not does. hold back his thoughts yeah. on Bill, which is pretty funny. Oh, he. I will say this though. If you look at a cross sport uh, comparison, Greg Popovich. Last four seasons, 32 and 39, 33 and 39, 34 and 48, 22 and 60. And then he gets Wembenyana, who is the, like, this guy is dunking. Like, it felt like he dunked in the middle of the paint the other day. Did you see that? I was like, this is not, yeah, this is not, like, this is not a human being. How can he possibly do that? And he can, I swear to God, he stole he the ball from a guy when he was at the three point line. The guy was like in the lane. <laughs> yeah. How did he do that? Is this. His, his wingspan is outrageous. I mean, I know during the preseason, everybody's like he's a bust and all that, but I think that he's starting to show that, hey, he, he's going to be a freakish talent. I think he's going to take the, the league by storm. Except, I think his basketball is like a, a little bit right. different than football. I, I, don't, I don't know, but yeah, like there's only like two teams, three teams. This is probably different this year that really have an opportunity to win a championship. They know that going into the year. Football, you know, kind of anything can happen. There's some teams that you don't expect to be there that end up in the playoffs that can potentially win Super Bowl. So I think it's a little bit different when it comes to that. But it's, it is a good comparison, though, that they let, you know, Popovich, and Popovich still was willing to coach through you know, having all those those young rosters. But it, I guess it has to be a conversation that has to be had between, you know, Bill and Kraft and that what they want to see going forward. Does Kraft want to see more immediate success or is he willing to, you know, kind of, you know, wait it out and figure out how things turn in you know, two, three. Years. Well, and I think the thing about if you look at this year's draft, right, if the Patriots end up with the top five pick, and I know Carolina doesn't have their pick because of the Bears trade, which that continues to look worse by the day considering all these guys coming out and the fact that C.J. Stroud, Casario may have got things right in Houston. I mean, that kid's an absolute, I love watching that guy plays a stud. I don't know why you draft a guy that's like small, 5'10", you have this C.J. Stroud, and I, I would have taken like, I didn't think C.J. Stroud would be this good if right away. Even, yeah, but if, I was like, if I was taking... Yeah, if they're, if they're, go ahead. 
Yeah, I said like if, if everything's even, like between the two, I know that whatever that little process and test and like all that stuff everybody was talking oh, yeah. about. But to me, if everything was even, I'm taking the the bigger guy. Yeah. Not like not like I'm a big guy myself. Like no shot at Bryce Young, which I think he's talented. He'll get it right soon. But all things are even. I'm gonna go with the, the bigger guy. I mean, especially after what he did against Georgia, that confirmed like kind of everything. Yeah, and. Anthony Richardson is there too. Is like this crazy town. I know he's dealing with an injury. He's got a yeah. he's got a little Josh Allen in him where it's like you gotta you gotta take less oh, hits, yeah. man. Like don't care. Yeah. The shoulder, <laughs> the one where he hurt the shoulder. That's like, dude, you, you, there's no reason you have to do that. I mean, just I mean, <laughs> save it. Um, but my point is like, if you look at the top five picks and why I bring up Wembenyama is like this, you know, solves the Spurs. It's like their next Duncan, right? They thought it was going to be Kawhi. Kawhi and the organization had issues. They move on from Kawhi, but it's like now they get their next star. And unfortunately, if you finish as a bottom five team and you're the Patriots, you have to look at the quarterback again, right? You have to go into this thinking, hey, we need if look, we had Caleb Williams. I know he didn't play well against Notre Dame, but Drake May is playing incredible. Michael Penix is awesome for Washington, right? Quinn Ewers is a talented guy, right? And you have all these quarterbacks. I mean, from Michigan that and you're thinking to yourself, (laughs) like, this could restart everything. My only fear would be after how we saw the last quarterback on a rookie contract, how the organization was built around him, that would be my fear of Bill, the personnel guy, still running things. It's like, uh, well, you kind of need these things called receivers, these guys called receivers, and we need these guys called <laughs> offensive linemen, Bill. That's kind of how we build this. So I do think the one silver lining with this season could be the draft. Like, could be that you, unfortunately for Mac Jones, he hasn't been good enough to prove. Obviously, they're not going to pick up his fifth-year option. If you have a chance to restart this thing, you have to. Yeah, I mean... That's what I'm saying. It has to be a conversation that has to be had between Kraft and Bill. Like, hey, like we keep losing. Maybe potentially, I can I can get a, a Caleb Williams. I can get a Drake May. You know, give, give me another opportunity to see if one of those guys can kind of you know, flip things for me. But they would definitely have to, obviously, get some other talent around him, you know, receiver wise and all that stuff, offensive line. So there's definitely you know, more than just you know a quarterback issue at this point. So yeah. I, like who would they who would they bring in if, if Bill's gone? Do they keep the same GM? Bring in a new GM? Who's going to be the coach? It would be. Uh, there's a lot to figure out, and that's kind of what happens when you know, teams are are losing and whatnot, especially early on this year. They, I'm sure those conversations are had between you know coaches, owners, GMs at this point. It's like, hey, like you know things aren't looking great so far. Like, what what, what are you guys thoughts? I mean, there's some talented guys in the. <laughs> In the draft coming out, <laughs> how are we going to handle this? What's going to be like our approach and all that stuff? So, yeah, it's a it's a business at the end of the day. Business decisions will be made. <laughs> and actually, you know who's in a good position? Mayo. Like if he gets the head coaching job, it's like, ooh, and you can get one of these franchise quarterbacks coming out. <laughs> yeah, start, start things off. Yeah, yeah not bad. Yeah, it's be, be bad. <laughs> but I, I, I would, my, my assumption is like Matt Groh is obviously connected to Bill. If if Bill's gone, Matt Groh is not going to be here. They'll get a new general manager to go along with Gerard Mayo because obviously Kraft did everything he could to keep him here. So I'm sure, and I know he can't do this, but I'm sure there's a wink, wink deal. Like, yeah, you're going to be the next head coach of the Patriots. So that would be a nice thing to start with where it's like, hey, we're rebuilding and you get to get your franchise quarterback. Not a bad thing for Mayo to have going forward, but be a good way to start it off but hey like i say this this is hard to see bill not being yeah you know patriot next year in my opinion but hey there's a lot of things that can happen from now until you know, january there's 
winning or losing, frustration that may be had. So, or trades and all that stuff. Who knows what may happen around the trade deadline? We, I guess, fan base has never been in this position in a long time. So, if they continue to lose, whether they try and you know trade some guys or try and bring people in, I, I don't know what they will do. But so the injury bug has definitely hurt them. Yeah. Defensively, offensively, some guys being in and out of the lineup. So, I think that's a conversation to be. Well, and to your point, like to the trading deadline thing. If it keeps going this way, like Kendrick Bourne is a free agent after the season. And if you're not going to bring him back, you, you might as well recoup some value. Like, like think about the Chiefs. They could, they desperately need yeah, a receiver. A- <laughs> he would be a great fit on that team. Yeah. And I'm not just saying that because I love Kendrick Bourne, but they desperately need like a good route runner. He And he can, impro- like Pat Mahomes is always improvising. He'd be perfect on that team. Probably get himself a Super Bowl ring too. Yeah, and bring bring the juice over there. He'd, be, he'd definitely be a good fit over there. But hey, we don't we don't want to put that in yeah. the air just yet, you know. Just, well, you think he'd have trouble <laughs> a, adjusting to like Pat Mahomes throwing the football? It's like, whoa, this is a little faster than when Mac throws it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit different. Mac throws with a lot more touch, you know. Pat throws a little bit more heat. Him and Josh Allen, they're they're letting it fly. They they don't care <laughs> as long as it gets there. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that is three time Super Bowl champ James White. James, thanks so much for the time, man. Enjoyed it as always. At the very least, these are becoming therapeutic. Yeah, gotta gotta let it out. You know, that's what they say. Don't keep it in. Just let, just let it out. <laughs> Fair enough. Great stuff, James. <laughs> Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there with three-time Super Bowl champ James White. Yeah, it's crazy just thinking about where this organization is going to go after the season. One in five. You got a lot of good quarterbacks as we were talking about with James White coming out. Of the collegiate level this year, we'll see if the Patriots, if they're in the top, I mean, they have to take a quarterback. There's no justification for keeping Mac Jones, even though he had a beautiful pass to Devontae Parker. Parker's going to make that play, as I was alluding to earlier. Just don't play Parker anymore. And I know Bill loves him. Gave him the extension. Play Thornton. See if you get anything out of these young guys. Play Thornton. Play Douglas when he comes back from concussion protocol. And play Bourne because Bourne's your best receiver. And get his value up if you're going to trade him before the trading deadline. That's what I'd be doing if I was the Patriots right now. But I did want to mention this real quickly because during the one o'clock, some of course, I got the Niners-Browns game on one TV and I have Red Zone going on the other one. And I thought the worst quarterback matchup of the day was going to be Mac versus Jimmy, which turned into Mac versus Hoyer, which is just going to be utterly embarrassing for the Patriots that Brian Hoyer beat you. <laughs> Brian Hoyer, you could argue, was the best quarterback in the game. He made that incredible throw to Tucker down the field where... I get, I give, hey, give Hoyer credit. Revenge Hoyer game. Don't ever get Brian Hoyer mad because he'll get revenge on you, especially if you have one of the most anemic offenses legitimately in the history of the NFL. But I thought that the matchup earlier in the day between Desmond Ritter, who stinks, and Sam Howell, who is just a reckless quarterback, I thought that would be the worst quarterback matchup of the day. It turned out to be in the late window with the Patriots and the Raiders. Don't ever underestimate how much Mac can lower a quarterback battle. So if you're looking for the worst quarterback battle of the week, odds are Mac is in it most of the time. He won't be the next couple of weeks as you play Josh Allen and, of course, Tua. But in that Atlanta-Washington game, one thing that jumped out to me was, whoa, Jonu Smith, touchdown. Jonu Smith in the game on Sunday, 36 yards and a touchdown. He has as many touchdowns with the Falcons as he did with the Patriots. He played two years with the Patriots. He only has one this season, of course, with Atlanta. He had one his entire time with the Patriots. 
And the one thing that jumped out to me, obviously the Myers thing is a huge miss because we saw him play really well against the Patriots. But Jonu Smith, I feel like this one is just they completely misused him. So where Jonu Smith, and I, I'm not telling you that Jonu was this great player or anything along those lines, but they tried to make him into a route runner rather than just scheming him open because that's what he did in Tennessee, right? You think about it, they had Derrick Henry. So now he's with his old offensive coordinator, Arthur Smith, who, of course, used to be the offensive coordinator of the Titans when he was there. Now he's the head coach of the Atlanta Falcons. It's a heavy play action scheme. You look at Ritter entering today, ninth in play action rate in terms of his dropbacks, ninth in the NFL. Tannehill in 2020 led the NFL in dropbacks out of play action at 36.4%. Mack last season with the Patriots, 16.7%. That was 39th of 41 quarterbacks. So this is sort of how John o. Smith would get open. You had to scheme him open. It's a hard play action fake and you hit him down the seam and he creates after the catch. That's what he's good at, right? So if you look at it, he already has more receiving yards this year than he did last year. He has two, he had 246 entering today, had another 36. He had 245 all of last year. And the big thing is this, this is where I tell you the scheme. So if you look at the yards before the reception, in 2020, his final year in Tennessee, 5.1 yards before the reception. 2021, that's down to 2.2. 2023, that's down to 1.7. And this season, it's up to 5.8 with Arthur Smith, which tells you Arthur Smith is getting Jonu Smith open. Jonu Smith, the Patriots are throwing the, the ball too close to the line of scrimmage and want they just want to take advantage of his yak ability. Well, you have to get him open first. I mean, he can't make everybody miss. And here's the thing is like, He's still his time with the Patriots. And look, I'm not telling you that I was the biggest John o. Smith fan. How could anybody be? But if you look at it in terms of the yak per reception, yards after the catch per reception, in 2020, he was eighth among tight ends at 5.8. He was 8.5 in 2021. That was first in the NFL, despite not having a lot of catches, of course. 7.5 in 2022, that was third. And then fourth this season at 6.0. So this is what he does really well, is his ability to create after the catch. So the thing about Jonu Smith is they tried to turn Jonu Smith into like this unbelievable tight end that can do it all. That's not who he is. He's a limited player. Like he's super athletic, can do things after the catch, but you have to get him open. He's not going to get himself open with his route running ability, right? Like Gronk could get himself open with his route running ability. Hunter Henry can get himself open with his route running ability. Jonu Smith can't do that. You have to scheme him open. And it feels like the Patriots just never knew how to get Jonu Smith open and you're seeing him play in this bad offense. Like Atlanta's offense stinks because Ritter is absolutely atrocious, but he's still putting up numbers because he's playing in a scheme that works for him. So the whole thing is, if you're going to pay John o. Smith, especially considering the money you paid him, you needed to put him in offense that was similar to the offense he was playing in Tennessee, and the Patriots never did that. So that's why it was a complete waste of money. And so like you had to have a really specific role for him if you were bringing him here, and clearly the Patriots didn't. All right, a lot more to get into coming up next. I want to get away from the Patriots for a second here, okay? So I have one thought on the Red Sox. I have one thought on the Cs, and I have one thought on the Bs. We'll do that next. Snap into action this NFL season with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. That's $200 in bonus bets, win or lose. All right, and I'm looking at this Monday night game, Chargers and the Cowboys. And this is for plus 380. It's the same game parlay. I like the Chargers on the money line. I'm starting to believe that the Cowboys are frauds. I like Herbert, 225 passing yards. 
Helps out Kellen Moore in the revenge game. And I like Eckler 40 receiving yards. So plus 380, Chargers on the money line, Herbert 225 passing yards, and Eckler 40 receiving yards. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to get in on the action. The app is so easy to use. There's a wide range of betting options, including spreads, player props, over-unders, and more. And FanDuel is now live in Kentucky. Download the app now and take advantage of their great special offers, boosts, and more. So visit FanDuel.com Pike and kick off the NFL season. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. Must be 21 plus in president select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I wanna wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. So I did want to get to, quickly here, one thought on the Red Sox, one thought on the Celtics, and one thought on the Bruins. So let's start with the Red Sox. Bob Nightingale had his weekly notes out on Sunday, and he had this to say in USA Today. The Boston Red Sox have interviewed assistant GM Eddie Romero among their internal candidates to replace Heim Bloom as their chief baseball officer, but Phillies GM Sam Fold may still be the favorite. So we already know that Mike Hazen got extended in Arizona. That was a guy that the Red Sox would have liked to have brought back, especially considering the success he's having with the Diamondbacks. Chris Antonetti is staying with the Guardians. I've made it abundantly clear that's the guy that I wanted. And Nightingale also noted that Mike Hill wants to keep his job with Major League Baseball, former guy that worked in the Marlins front office. He's working for the league now. He wants to stay doing that. So this is the part of this that is kind of annoying. To me, right now, the search for this GM position for or head baseball officer, whatever the title is officially going to be, the search is embarrassing. Nobody wants the job. This is the Boston Red Sox, and you're not going to have your pick. Like, hey, you have all these candidates that could take over the job. We want that guy. You don't have that anymore as the Boston Red Sox, which is just bad. And look, your in-house candidate right now is Eddie Romero, and Sam Fold is the front runner, according to Nightingale. Fold, by the way, I know they love him from when he interviewed for the managerial position. Of course, they hired Cora over Sam Fold. But does anybody really think that his fingerprints are on the Phillies? Schwarber, Turner, and Castellanos. Those are Dave Dombrowski guys, right? Big names, especially the first two. This is what Dombrowski does. So who the hell knows what Sam Fold has really done there, right? And look, Eddie Romero may turn out to be really a great GM. We don't know. Sam Fold may turn out to be a great GM. 
That's certainly a possibility, but my point with this is, this has gone from one of the most appealing jobs in Major League Baseball to one where the big names out there, the guys that you should be able to get, the Antonettis of the world, the Mike Hazens of the world, they don't even want the job. They're not interested in the job. And this is sort of the spot that the Red Sox now find themselves in. By the way, how embarrassing would it be if the Red Sox hire Sam Fold, who's Dave Dombrowski's understudy? Like you had the actual guy that was doing the job and you're going to hire basically the guy working underneath Dave Dombrowski. So it just, the whole thing is a mess to me. But how could you want this job if you're a big name guy like Antonetti and now like Mike Hazen with the work they've done recently in Arizona? The way the ownership group has handled this is a joke. And now they're paying for it in the search, right? So just think about this, post-Theo. 2015, in August, the Red Sox hired Dave Dombrowski. Ben Sherrington was still the GM at the time. And I know technically it was like Dombrowski was taken over for Larry Lachino, but Dombrowski was the president of baseball operations. So he was Ben Sherrington's baseball boss. Not just his boss, he was his baseball boss. This was in 2015. They won the World Series in 2013. And they were already looking to move on from Ben Sherrington, where he had just won the World Series two years prior. And look, I'm not saying that Sherrington was unbelievable at his job and that it wasn't the right move to eventually give Dave Dombrowski the job. I certainly believe that. Dave Dombrowski is one of the best executives in the history of the sport. I mean, where can you get guys like that, right? But anyway, Dave was a massive upgrade. I'm not denying that. Sherrington had some terrible misses, right? I mean, he was really like a seat. It was so up and down with Sherrington. You think about the Crawford thing was a disaster. Rusny Castillo, remember that guy? What a mess that was. Pablo Sandoval, that was a mess. His belt fell off. But you do give him credit. He did sign Rafi. He did draft Benintendi early in the draft. I believe that was the seventh pick. He won the Golden Spikes when he was at Arkansas. But he did put together a World Series team, right? Shane Victorino, outstanding signing. Mike Napoli, outstanding signing. Gomes, outstanding signing. You can go through it. Like, Koji, outstanding fine. Like, they did a really nice job that year putting together a team that, quite frankly, nobody thought was going to win the World Series, and they did. Like, he deserves credit for that. But he was a roller coaster. But the point is, this is just one example of a GM that won a World Series and two years later, (laughs) you're looking for his replacement. And that would be fine, but then you did it again, right? Like you were right to move on from Sherrington. Now, the way that it all sort of came about, it it was bad for Sherrington. Like it's a bad look to do that to Sherrington, right? And I'm not saying that if you can get Dave Dombrowski, you get him. But then they did the same thing, right? You think about Dombrowski, he got fired during the 19 season. This is after he won three straight division titles and he won the World Series in 18, okay? So he got fired less than a year removed from winning a World Series. They literally won the World Series 10 months prior and they fired him. And part of this was 19 was not great. We all acknowledge that. The sale extension was bad, but that felt like ownership was basically blaming Dombrowski for the sale extension. And I'm sure he wanted to give it to sale, but the point being, ownership itself came out and basically said the reason that they did this was they botched the John Lester situation. Chris Sale has said he should thank John Lester for his contract. Chris Sale has actually said that before, right? So they wanted him to be the scapegoat for that contract, so to speak. So, but if you look at Dave Dabrowski, he he had unbelievable success here. He made the great original trade for Chris Sale, the great trade for Kimbrell, who ended up being one of the best relievers in Major League Baseball for the time he was with the Red Sox. The great JD signing, which was unbelievable, and the great deal at the deadline in 18 to put you over the top, get a guy like Steve Pierce. He brought in Kinsler, too. You needed a second baseman that could hit from the right 
side of the plate, right? He had incredible runs. And 10 months after putting together the best team in franchise history, remember, it's not just that Dave Nabrowski won the World Series. They won 108 games. No Red Sox team had ever won 108 games. They outscored teams by 229 runs. And in the postseason, they lost three total games, one game in each series. Think about how dominant you have to do to do that in Major League Baseball. It usually does not operate that way. We lose three games the entire postseason. It's a ridiculous run. And you fired him after one bad year, right? And Dabrowski, here's the problem. He's one of the most respected baseball minds in the sport. He's now taken four organizations to the World Series. And he's won with two different organizations, of course, and we're talking about the Red Sox. And of course, he won with the Florida Marlins. And maybe him and the Phillies win the whole damn thing this year. He may get back to the, he may go to the World Series in back-to-back seasons, right? So look, at the difference, he's already made a huge difference, I should say, in Philadelphia. Huge difference. Back-to-back trips to, at the very least, the NLCS. And maybe, as we were mentioning, back-to-back trips to the World Series. So clearly, they got that wrong, right? When we just, we've gone through the sign bloom era, right? And maybe if Dave Nabrowski's here, he prevents the Mookie thing from happening. Maybe ultimately, look, we don't know all the details and all this, and we've been over this and over this and over this, but maybe Dave's like, yeah, this is one of the five best players in the sport. Fucking pay him. Like maybe Dave would have stepped in and said, hey, we have to give this guy every, because look at Dave, this is his MO. He's given all the Trey Turner, huge contract. Schwarber, big contract, right? That's what he does. So I don't think that Dave Dombrowski would have let Mookie Betts get away. I mean, that's just me guessing. Who knows? I know Mookie had already passed on deals, et cetera. I don't want to get into a whole Mookie thing, but I'm just saying, maybe if Dave's here, it goes differently. But my big point with this is when you treat Dave Dombrowski this way, when you fire him 10 months after winning a World Series and winning three straight division titles and you show no gratitude, and look, to a lesser extent, Ben Sherrington too, right? This is a World Series guy. He's got a reputation. He's a Theo guy. Theo, of course, him and Dave Dombrowski, probably the two most respected guys that have been doing it over the past 20 years or so. I know Theo's been out of the game for a while here, but when you have guys like Dave Dombrowski and Ben Sherrington, people that are respected in the sport, especially Dombrowski, as I mentioned, when you treat people this way, eventually it's going to burn you. And that's what's happening in the search. You can't just get whoever you want because of what you've done recently in the past, the way you treated Ben Sherrington. The way that you treated Dave Dombrowski, Chris Antonetti should want to come here. Mike Hazen should want to come here, right? Mike Hill should want to come here, but they don't want to. Why? Because this is what I was saying a couple of weeks ago when we had Julian McWilliams on. I don't believe there's a ton of appeal for this job right now. And it should be. It's the Red Sox, right? And look, there's certainly work to do with the Major League roster. I acknowledge that. But guys should want to come here, work for the Red Sox, right? This should be like an ideal job in Major League Baseball. And the problem is the ownership has done such a bad job handling guys with World Series rings, not just like guys that were here and we liked them. Dave Dombrowski and Ben Sherrington actually did things. Like I said, Dave was way better than Ben uh, Sherrington. I'm, I'm acknowledging that. I'm just saying he did win a World Series, right? And this is how you treat guys that have won a World Series. And these are guys that have good reputations across the league. You can't keep, you can't treat people this way and expect your job just because you're the Red Sox is going to be the job that everybody wants. It's not. And they're finding this out the hard way in this search. So they've had this right, this situation where you look at it because of their past issues, they can't hire the best guy for the job. I've said on multiple occasions, I said it to start this, it should be Antonetti. Antonetti should want to be here. Maybe Fold's great. Maybe Romero works out. We don't know. But the point is, 
It's now time for the Red Sox to get a known entity like Dave Dombrowski. Like, that's where you're at in sort of the rebuilding process of this franchise. Hiring an unknown that's never done it before, like Sam Fold, that's for a rebuild, okay? That's for a rebuild situation. Right now, you need the guy that can come in here and put you over the top. The farm system is stocked right now. You need to win now, and you are going to need a situation where you have an established guy, and these established guys don't even want to take your interview, don't even want to interview with you because of the way that you've treated guys in the past, right? Dombrowski, like, when you hired him, he wasn't a question mark at all. He is a certainty. We knew that he was going to be good. And I'm not saying that Antonetti is as good as Dave Dombrowski, like Dombrowski's walking into the Hall of Fame, but he's one of the best guys doing it right now. His track record is pretty darn good. And so it's just, it's aggravating to me, like, Heim's been gone for a while now, and we still, the leader in the clubhouse is a guy in Sam Fold that's never done it before, and his work in a front office is basically working under Dave Dombrowski, who's the best guy in the sport, so that means he's going to be good because he's working around Dave, and we know Dave's doing all the big things. I just, I don't buy into it whatsoever. Okay, so that's just something I need to get off my chest because it's very aggravating to me. I did have a random Red Sox thought, too. So... I was watching the Phillies-Braves game, like I'm sure a lot of you were last week. And by the way, <laughs> that it's awesome that they hate each other. It's just like really fun to watch. But one of the things that jumped out to me, Austin Riley had a pair of hits, okay? And I just remember he signed a contract the year prior to Raffi. And I was thinking, man, they got Riley at a really good price, right? Like if you look at the contract that he signed, really reasonable deal. And at the time, you were hopeful, hey, maybe the Red Sox can get something similar done with Raphael Devers. The Braves gave him basically an arbitration extension. So they bought out the final two years of his contract, okay, or bought out the final two years of arbitration, I should say. They did their work early because they were seeing this guy on their own team, in their own organization, and they were looking at him and they're saying, you know what, <laughs> this is going to be one of the best third basemen in Major League Baseball. Let's not screw around with this. Let's get it done now so we can get it at a better price before he completely blows up. And he kind of had blown up, but not to the extent he is now. With Rafi, what the Red Sox decided to do was they waited, right? <laughs> they decided they were going to wait and see what he could do. And originally, they offered him the Matt Olson deal. It was like $168 million. So what happens there is you know you're not going to get him. But nonetheless... Once he passes on that one, it's easy to keep passing on contract offers and not really be in a position where you're negotiating, right? Like Mookie Betts has always said, the first contract, the first $100 million contract was the toughest to pass up because that's life-altering money and you're a long way away from free agency. But once you got to the point where Rafi was close to free agency, there was no reason for him to sign. So they end up with a huge overpay for Rafi because of that. If they went to him after 19 which there had been some reporting around that time that Dave Dombrowski, that, that was one of the priorities. They wanted to get Raphael Devers signed after the 2019 season. That was his breakout year where he led Major League Baseball in doubles. But anyway, so they don't get that done then. But now you have to wait until one year before he becomes a free agent. So it's an overpay, right? So if you look at the Raphael Devers deal now, it's horrible compared to Austin Riley, who was the far superior player this season. So if you look at the numbers, Riley this year, nine defensive runs saved, which was fourth among third basemen. Rafi was at minus nine. So <laughs> Riley nine, Rafi minus nine, which only one qualified third baseman was worse. You look at the offense, pretty similar numbers. Riley, 281, 345, 516, 861. Rafi, 271, 351, 500, 851. 
So he actually had the superior offensive season as well. Riley had 37 home runs compared to Rafi that had 33. Here's the big difference. Riley is on a 10-year contract worth $212 million. Raphael Devers is on a 10-year contract worth $313.5 million. So (laughs) Riley was the superior offensive player and 18 runs better defensively. There's no comparison right now between the two players, right? So... If you look at it, if you just look at the value, the Fangraphs war, Riley 5.2, that's 14th overall. Rafi 3.1, that's 61st overall. He's right in front of Stephen Kwan, who hit five home runs this season, and he's behind Glaber Torres. He's behind Torres. Imagine that. Like, he's behind Glaber Torres, and he's making $313 million. So you're paying north of $10 million per season for Rafi, who's 47 slots lower than Riley on the value scale. So the Riley contract is a great contract. It's good value. The Rafi contract is horrendous. And the problem is, and I like Rafi, and I don't think the Sox had a choice. They had to get him signed after what happened with Mookie and what happened with Xander Bogarts. But by not getting in front of this early, you cost yourself probably $10 million per season. If you had offered Rafi this contract after 19, I don't think he's passing it up, right? And now, if you look at it, his flaws as a baseball player are being highlighted, right? Because... You're in a situation right now where his defense has been atrocious, and that's going to be highlighted, especially with the contract, right? You can't be that bad defensively with that type of contract. And I know Carlos Fables, who's the third base coach, was the third base coach and the infield instructor. He's gone. I don't think like somebody new is going to come in and fix Rafi defensively. It's kind of who he is at this point. He just makes too many careless mistakes, careless errors, right? So that's my Red Sox thought is right now the search for a GM is embarrassing, and the Rafael Devers contract is horrendous if you compare it to... Austin Riley. All right. Now, getting to the Celtics, B-Rob broke the news over the weekend that Jeff Van Gundy is working as a consultant. He's splitting time between Boston and the main Red Claws. The guy won 430 NBA games, and he took the Knicks to the NBA Finals. I get it, 99 lockout season and all that, but he still took the Knicks to the NBA Finals. I love it. I mean, he coached the FIBA teams, too, in 17 and 19. So look, he hasn't coached an NBA game since 07. I get that. But he just did that stint with undergrade Popovich for Team USA. He has been around the game the whole time as an analyst, and he coached, just in terms of like the type of player, he coached one of the biggest centers in the history of the league in Yao Ming, and his other star player was a wing in T-Max, so just simple things like in terms of you're looking at the Tatum-Porzingis bearing, in terms of the angles of the screen, that type of stuff, I mean, that certainly could come in and help him, but he's seen what certain teams do against Giannis, right? Like, he's going all over the country watching these games, seeing Giannis and seeing how teams defend Jokic. Like, he's seen all these different strategies that other teams have incorporated when they go up against the best teams in the league. So I think he could certainly bring a ton to the table. Like, Van Gundy was a really good coach. Why wouldn't you want him, right? So it's just another example of Brad doing everything he can to help Joe Missoula. And if you look at that staff, we know they added Sam Cassell. We know they added Charles Lee. And by the way, that GM survey that was out last week, they came in tied for fourth in terms of the best assistants in the NBA. And we've already seen Charles Lee is working with Drew Holiday, which is another great thing to have. Like the guy coached Holiday in Milwaukee. You have a guy, and not that they knew this is going to happen, but it just so happens to work out that you have a guy that's been coaching him for three years or so, and now he's going to be coaching him again. I mean, this is perfect. Like he knows exactly how Drew Holiday wants to play, wants to operate, and all that different type of stuff. And then when you look at Tatum, he's been working with Sam Cassell on some post stuff. And if you look at Tatum, he averaged 1.35 points per possession in the post in the postseason. 27 points in 20 possessions. That was in the 88th percentile. (laughs) But it was only 20 possessions. Like, he was dominant when he gets in there. 
And that's the question. Why is it only 20? You heard Joe Mazzulla talk about it in the offseason or talk about it on media day. They're going to incorporate more post-ups, or at least they want to. It's something you can certainly dig into. And then you go to the regular season, 127 points in 104 possessions on post-ups. That's 1.22 points per possession, 94th percentile. So I'd expect the post usage to go way up this season for Jason Tatum. I'm not telling you like he's going to be an old school back to the basket center, but you can certainly take advantage of Jason Tatum in the post. It's where he's been really effective. And most of the time, he's going to overpower a smaller defender. And I've always thought, like I've mentioned on multiple occasions, that he needs to be better in the mid-range. Last year, he shot 41.2% on the short mid-rangers via cleaning the glass. That was in the 54th percentile. And he shot 38.3% in the long mid-range. That was in the 56th percentile via cleaning the glass. So I always thought this was going to be where he needs to get better. In terms of the postseason, you've got to sometimes hit difficult twos. But I also think the post-ups could cover up some of that too because he can score there and he can make plays, right? Like if you don't double Tatum, odds are he's going to score on his defender because most nights Tatum has a smaller defender than him on him. So most of the time he's going to score in there. If he doesn't, now he's got all these shooters around him. If he gets doubled, it's going to be an easy angle to make a pass to an open three-point shooter. So I love that that Sam Cassell is working with Tatum. Another thing that I thought was interesting is Kristaps Porzingis said, and I saw Bobby Manning from CLNS Media post the video. He had this to say, quote, if all our stats dip a little bit, who cares? We're here to win. That's it. (laughs) So you can be skeptical and be like, well, of course he's going to say that, Brian. What else is he going to say? But I truly feel like this is a real thing we're hearing from Kristaps Porzingis because Think about his career. He comes in and he's sort of like the original unicorn, right? He was the talk of the league for a couple of months when he was with the Knicks. And then he starts to pile up the injuries, doesn't go well in New York. So then he goes to Dallas, right? And has that great start to the playoffs that year. But then he goes down with the injury, right? Like they were playing really well against the Clippers and he was a reason for that. So the following postseason, though, he comes back from the injury that season. He wasn't good in the postseason. He gets blamed for that. And then the Mavericks send Porzingis to Washington, and after he gets traded to Washington, they make their run to the conference finals, to the Mavericks, right? So the Mavericks were right to move on from Porzingis when they did, right? There was this perception, hey, we kind of need to get this guy out of here, and it actually worked out for them, right? But now you look at it, that sort of, it kind of reminds me on a lesser scale to the Nomar situation where, in the case of the Mavs, they didn't even make it to the NBA finals, they made it to the conference finals. But it's like, oh, yeah, they got a lot better when he was gone. And so you think about him, it's going to be difficult to watch that, right? It's like, hold on, this is the team I was just playing for. What they needed to do was move on from me, and that's how they made their run. So to me, if you think about it, after he gets traded, they go on that run. So then last season, the past two years, past year and a half, I should say, because, of course, he was traded at the deadline, he's playing irrelevant basketball games for a year and a half in Washington. And he had his best season. He goes for 23 23- Point two points per game, career high in field goal percentage, career high in effective field goal percentage as well. So sure, he was trying to win games, like that's what he's trying to do. But you also have to think about part of it, part of what he was doing, he's trying to prove to the league that he could be part of a good team. The Dallas situation just didn't work out, right? So he needed to prove, A, that he could stay on the court, and he did that mostly last year. He played in 65 games, and that number is a little misleading even because he would have played more if Washington didn't start completely tanking down the stretch of the season. So what he proved to the Celtics, obviously, and I'm sure some other teams as well, hey, I can still be that last piece that puts you over the top. And so when he says, if you're winning, who cares, basically, if your stats dip, that to me is genuine. Because 
He's lived basically what feels like already a full basketball life. And he wants to play in relevant basketball games again. And that's now the opportunity he has, which he hadn't had over the past year and a half. This is why he opted into the contract. Remember, he wants the opportunity to play for a winner because he couldn't have just signed with the Celtics. They didn't have the flexibility from a salary cap perspective. So he needed to opt into that contract and come here. So that's why I think this is a genuine comment by Porzingis. And the other portion of that is think about how easily he could change his perception if he plays well here. The perception of him, I should say. Because after Dallas, it was sort of like, hey, you're a losing player. You're just going to be playing for garbage teams the rest of your career because no contender is going to want you. And now he has that moment where he gets to get back on a contender. Nobody paid attention to him last year in Washington. Now he's playing for a good team. He's earned the opportunity to play for a contender again by some of the improvements he's made. So if he has a good year and he's part of the reason the Celtics team makes a run to the NBA Finals, which if they do, he certainly will be. He's going to be looked at totally differently than he was two years ago when he's traded at the deadline from Dallas and it seemed like this is the move. We just need to get this guy out of the building. Think about sort of the full circle this would be for Porzingis if he's the reason now a contender goes over the top from a couple of years ago being a reason the contender actually makes a run is not having him on the team. So I do believe those comments are genuine. I'm just getting so hyped up for the Celtics because I really think this team is going to be a complete wagon and I, I love everything that I hear coming out of practice the preseason games and look I know it's preseason and all that I don't want to go too far over the top but I'm genuinely excited right now all right just real quick on the Bruins of course they win the opener played two games last week they win the opener and against Chicago they dominated that game the Corsi rating which is block shots shots on net and shots wide 64 to 40 so they dominate a play and the thing that stuck out to me in that game the first game Lindholm and Carlo they got the Connor Bedard line which <laughs> that kid absolutely flies he had the goal of course but on five on five, Lindholm on the ice, Bruins outscored the Blackhawks two to nothing. One was the empty netter, of course, but still the shots 19 to nine in favor of the Bruins. The Corsi 38 to 14 in favor of the Bruins in that particular category. So this is, he just kind of reminded you of like, this is a legit shutdown defenseman when you put him out there against the number one pick. And I get it. It's his first or second, technically Connor Bedard, because they played opening night against Pittsburgh, but he's just getting his feet wet in the NHL, but there was a reminder of how good of a player Lindholm is. Okay, cool seeing Luch back. I thought he had the primary assist on the pasta goal in the first game of the season on Wednesday, and then he joked around about Johnny Beecher's fight, if you saw that, against Jason Dickinson. He said, he did well. I mean, obviously, he did well. He could use a little work, so I could give him a few pointers, but good to see him stand up for himself there. Obviously, not the best fight for him, but nonetheless, I mean, it's his first NHL fight, but pasta, of course, had the empty netter on the feed from Luch, and then He's just so dangerous, right? So like there are some games where Pasta just, he jumps off the screen at you. I didn't feel that way in the first game of the season, but then when he gets his chances, it seems like he always cashes in, right? And that's what I'm talking about. He gets the feed from Lucci, scores, he has the empty netter, so he gets the two goals. But that's what makes him so special. I had him for three shots on Fandle, so I was very happy with that. But when he did jump off the screen was Saturday night on the penalty shot, right? Where he just whipped it, man. That was a ridiculous goal by pasta so he has these moments you're just like man not many guys in the nhl can do that which makes him such a fun player to watch potra by the way got his first point in the first game of the season where patient turns around finds carlo carlo sends one at the net and it's redirected by frederick so potra this is a big thing that we're talking about with connor ryan is getting this guy to a good start early on because he's going to be really important for this team to be successful this season they just lost too many guys in terms of losing bergeron Losing Krejci, you need Potra to be good this season. 
And then the game on Saturday, James Van, uh, James Van Riemsdyk, remember, he scores twice. The first one, Saros, the goalie, would like to have back. But the second one redirects it on the McAvoy shot on the power play. And this is what, again, going back to Connor Ryan, our conversation on Tuesday, he talked about the money ball comparison in terms of what can Van Riemsdyk do? Well, he's a net front presence. And we certainly saw that in the game on Saturday night. That's what you need him to do, right? He's not going to be the player that Bertuzzi was. He's not going to be the player that Hall was, but can he be a net front presence for you? And he certainly did that on Saturday night. He was a big part of that win. So a really good start to the season for the Bruins, hopping out to 2-0. And if you look now, they're off until Thursday, which is crazy, man. They played Wednesday, a couple days off, then they play Saturday, and now they're not going to play again until Thursday night, and they actually go all west. So you get the Sharks, who are not a good team, and you get the Kings on Saturday, who have not been great to start the season, did get the Avs and the Hurricanes, to be fair, though. So they, they played good teams. But then the Ducks, who are one of the worst teams in the NHL. Actually, they were the worst team in the NHL last season. And then it's at Chicago on the way back to the East Coast. And then you're at home for Anaheim. So you look at the first seven games, the, the Bruins have a real chance to win six or so. They've already won two of them, right? And after Detroit, who has been frisky, by the way, I watched their opener against the Devils that they ended up losing 4-3, but they did beat the Lightning, like, and they play tonight. But I watched that game the other night, and then Florida after this part of the schedule, then you get Florida, then you get Toronto. It starts to get real after the Detroit game, right? But this schedule is, it's really kind of... uh, Nice start to the season for them, right? Because, and I've been watching a ton of hockey over the first couple of days of the season. I watched Ovi and Crosby the night. Crosby dominated that matchup at the two goals. But, and so it's been a, like, I think the NHL, the start of the season's been awesome. I think the sport's at a really good spot. But just getting back to sort of the Bruins part of this is when I'm, the reason I reference the schedule going out West playing those, two of those games you should win. You won your first two, and then you're going to see the Blackhawks again, that that's a rebuilding organization. But the thing that sticks out to me is when you have all these new guys that you're sort of trying to get going here, and Van Riemsdyk did a nice job on Saturday night, Patra, young player, Beecher, young player, right? There's some turnover on this roster. It's good to have an easy start to the season before you get into your hard game. So I actually think the schedule makers did the Bruins a lot of favor. Like ordinarily, you think, oh, we got to go out west really early on in the season. It actually really benefits the Beast to do that. So I have had a lot of fun watching the Bruins to start the year. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in. 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700, or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming.
Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York.